Welcome. You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast, the show that cuts through the fog of war and updates you about the ongoing conflict in Ukraine. With your host, Linnea Hubbard. Don't forget to like, comment and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and Google Podcasts. I'm Linnea Hubbard, and today is Friday, August 19th, 2022. It's been 3,095 days since Russia occupied Crimea on February 27, 2014, and 177 days since the large-scale invasion of Ukraine began. Today's podcast looks at what happened yesterday in the Russia-Ukraine war. The Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War update is compiled by our team from around the world. Today's report includes information from direct contacts in Ukraine and their proxies, Russian Ministry of Defense reports, the General Staff of the Armed Forces of Ukraine reports, Operational Command South of Ukraine, Open Source Intelligence, our in-house team of analysts and geolocation experts, and pro-Ukrainian and pro-Russian mill bloggers and social media accounts with a track record of trying to be accurate. We have one mission to report the truth, because the truth matters. Let's start with some assessment of the current status of the war. First, the Russian Ministry of Defense made no claims of capturing new territory for the first time since early July, and Russian troops have demonstrated they are incapable of concentrating combat power in an offensive as they did in Luhansk. Second. We maintain that the 1st Army Corps of the Donetsk People's Republic and the 2nd Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic are combat ineffective. Third, Russian military doctrine has relied on indigenous militias and mercenaries to do the bulk of frontline fighting, such as in Chechnya, Syria, and the Central African Republic, in order to minimize official combat losses and weaken rump states. The waste of human capital among Donbass separatists has hobbled combat capabilities. Fourth, Russian defensive lines north of Slovyansk are under increasing pressure, with Ukraine now firing artillery on Russian positions within Izum. Fifth, the number of so-called accidents Russian military assets have experienced deep behind the line of conflict was likely caused by external forces and not a run of bad luck. Sixth, Russian missile attacks are targeting Ukrainian universities and institutions of higher learning, actions connected to destroying Ukrainian culture and institutions. Seventh, the first signs of supply issues for Russian forces in the Kherson region are starting to appear. And finally, we maintain the battlefront is frozen across Ukraine, and time is running out for both belligerents to launch brigade or army-sized offensives. Let's get some regional updates, starting in the Donbass region with the slovyansk bilohorivka berestova Triangle. There is limited fighting in northeast Donetsk, with Russian forces attempting to advance in the direction of Vimka from Spirna and Mikolaevka without success. Russian artillery shelled Verknokamyanskya, Kriurivka, Ivanodarivka, Serebrianka, Siversk, Bilohorivka in Donetsk, and Berestova. They also shelled the Ukrainian ground line of communication, known as a G-lock or supply line, between Fedorivka and Spirna. Russian forces also carried out airstrikes on Ukrainian positions in Bilohorivka in Donetsk. 
Members of the Second Army Corps of the Luhansk People's Republic, or LNR, shared pictures of a person equipped with a man-portable drone jammer. The pictures of a separatist soldier equipped with an advanced piece of Russian military hardware were juxtaposed with him wearing an ill-fitting uniform and flip-flops with socks. Our assessment here is the same as it was on August 18th. You'll find it in yesterday's episode around minute two or three. To the south, Russian attempts to advance on Bakhmut continued without changing the line of conflict. Russian forces and their proxies fought positional battles on the outskirts of Solodar, supported by artillery and attack aircraft, and attempted to advance into Bakhmutska without success. PMC Wagner Group, Russian Airborne VDV forces, and elements of the LNR 2nd Army Corps, supported by the Russian Air Force, attempted to advance on Bakhmut from three directions, without success. An airstrike hit the settlement of Vesela Dolina, but Russian ground forces did not attempt an advance. Russian forces and their proxies, supported by airstrikes, also attempted to advance on Zaitseve, 10 kilometers southeast of Bakhmut, from Semihira, and were unsuccessful. In the Svetlodarsk bulge, PMC Wagner Group and LNR separatists attempted to advance on Kodema without success, and Russian forces attempted to advance on Zaitseve from Holyevsky, but could not make any forward progress. A news report from Russian state media highlighted PMC Wagner and their forward operating base in Dolomitne. Due to poor operational security, the location was easily geolocated and revealed that Russian forces are not as far north as the Russian Ministry of Defense has reported. The mercenaries wore Ukrainian military uniforms in the video, which is considered a war crime and a breach of military protocol. For professional soldiers, wearing the uniform of the enemy in an attempt to deceive them is viewed as an act of cowardice. Based on the updated intelligence, We've adjusted the map and moved the line of conflict south to the outskirts of Dolomitne. This does not represent new territorial gains. Our assessment of Bakhmut remains unchanged from August 9th, which we recapped on Tuesday's episode around minute 7 or 8. It's been five days since there was significant fighting west of Donetsk. The slowdown in offensive operations by the First Army of the Donetsk People's Republic, or DNR, is likely caused by a lack of adequately trained light infantry soldiers to advance into and hold new territory. DNR separatists launched their first offensive toward Kamyanka since July 29th. Belligerents fought a positional battle, and there was no change in the line of conflict. Separatists attempted to flank Avdivka by advancing from Novoselivka Druha and were unsuccessful. There was an attempt to advance into Pervomaisky from the Russian-occupied areas of Piski. Separatists were unable to move forward. The general staff of the armed forces of Ukraine reported the Ukrainian positions in Piski were shelled, indicating that Ukraine maintains a toehold in the village. In our assessment, Ukrainian troops remain in defensive positions near the E-50 ring road, the Butivka mine ventilation shaft complex, and the northeast corner toward the destroyed international airport in Vesele. DNR separatists attempted another open-country advance from Lozova toward Pervomaiske and were unsuccessful. Russian and Ukrainian aircraft got into a dogfight over the skies of Ukrainian-controlled Pokrovsk, sending stunned residents into the street to watch the engagement, 
Neither aircraft was shot down in the fight. Interjecting a little assessment here, Russia's failure to establish air supremacy will be a long chapter when the history of the Russian-Ukraine war is written. It's astonishing that six months after the invasion, Ukraine is flying active combat air patrols in the Donbass and seeking the initiative against Russian fighter aircraft. The introduction of NATO-provided AGM-88 harm missiles, which target air defense radars, has enabled Ukraine to execute Suppress Enemy Air Defense Missions, or SEAD. By blinding Russian air defenses, Ukraine has been able to step up both air combat and ground attack operations. In the southern part of the Donbass, DNR separatists attempted to advance in the direction of Vodyana from Taramchuk. The wording in the general staff report has caused the fog of war to form. Taramchuk is well behind the known line of conflict. In our assessment, this was carefully worded in the report for operational security reasons, and fighting is likely closer to Solodke or Stepne. Overall, our assessment of the Donbass is unchanged from August 17th. You'll find it in Wednesday's episode around minutes 7 or 8. There were no reports of significant fighting around Kharkiv. Russian and Ukrainian forces fired artillery, rockets from MLRS, and used tanks for indirect fire across the line of conflict. The general staff reported that Ukrainian positions in UD were shelled, and pro-Russian sources and accounts have made no further claims that UD is under Russian control. Our assessment in Kharkiv is the same as it was on August 12th. We had previously assessed that Russian forces were testing the capabilities of the Ukrainian Territorial Guard taking over the defense of Izum, and we were correct. Positional fighting, reconnaissance, and probing for weakness will continue to occur. On the Izum axis, Russian forces launched small attacks on the settlements of Brazhkivka, Dubrovne, and in the direction of Novodimitrivka. None of the advances were successful. There was fighting in the forests north of Mazanivka, likely related to the offensive toward Dubrovne. Pro-Russian social media account Rybar reported that Russian and PMC Wagner Group positions within Izum came under artillery fire from Ukrainian armed forces. It's the first time Ukraine has fired artillery within the city since March 31st. In our assessment, based on the intelligence reports and data from August 18th, We believe that squad or platoon-sized Russian units are attempting to break through Ukrainian defense and flank their positions. Brazhivka was recently liberated. The line of conflict sits on the village's northern edge, making it easier for Russian forces to interdict Ukrainian efforts to set up defenses. The Ukrainian units fighting in this region are experienced, well-equipped, and have high morale. The Russian troops defending Izum are LNR and DNR conscripts, Russian volunteer units, terrorist elements of the Imperial Legion, terrorist elements of the Rusik Group, and PMC Wagner. The admission by Russian sources that Izum has been shelled has likely damaged morale. Ukraine and Russia traded sporadic artillery fire along the rest of the line of conflict. Our overall assessment of the Azum axis is unchanged from August 8th, which we recapped on Monday's episode around minute 15. 
You're listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. Our team of journalists, researchers, and analysts is funded by readers, listeners, and viewers just like you. To support independent journalism, please consider becoming a patron. You can find us on patreon.com at Malcontent News. Moving on to the Dnipro, Kherson, Mykolaiv, and Zaporizhia regions. We start in Kherson, where Operational Command South of the Armed Forces of Ukraine hinted that they attempted an offensive toward Stanislav and Shiroka Balka. The advance was unsuccessful. The report stated, quote, During the day, our units carried out offensive actions twice with the aim of capturing new settlements. During one of the attacks, we met with two airborne assault units. During the counterattack, the enemy was hit by fire, as a result of which he was forced to retreat to his original position with the loss of tanks, armored vehicles, and personnel. End quote. The report stated that two Russian soldiers were captured. Neither the Russian Ministry of Defense nor reliable pro-Russian sources mentioned any combat in the region. NASA Fire Information for Resource Management Systems, or FIRMS, didn't show any heat anomalies, but thunderstorms have obscured satellite intelligence most of the week. There is a video of fighting in this area, but it is only tentatively geolocated. Much of the region is open farmland separated by groves of trees. In the video, Ukrainian artillery dismantles a line of Russian artillery pieces and support vehicles dug in amongst the trees. The report from Operational Command South added, quote, In response, the enemy tried to carry out an attack on the mechanized detachment in the direction of Oleksandrivka, Stanislav. End quote. Some quick assessment. Fighting for control of Oleksandrivka and Stanislav has continued since the first Russian forces advanced to the banks of the Dnipro estuary in March. The settlement of Oleksandrivka has changed control so many times we've placed the line of conflict through the center of the settlement and marked the area north and south as contested. The city itself has been obliterated. Drone videos and pictures show heavy damage to almost every building, and basic infrastructure is destroyed. Reading between the lines, we assess Ukraine is in Oleksandrivka with ongoing fighting between Russian airborne VDV forces versus Ukrainian mechanized infantry. There wasn't any actionable intelligence to adjust the map. The bridge at the Novokhovka was hit again by rockets fired by high-mobility rocket artillery systems, or HIMARS, thwarting Russian combat engineer attempts to repair the structure. A Russian ammunition depot was destroyed in Blachodotny. The report indicates that Ukraine has been completely pushed out of Kisilivka, and we have adjusted the map based on this intelligence. Russian aviation hit Ukrainian positions on the Inulets River bridgehead, including Bilohirka and Lozova. Operational Command South reported that two Russian battalion tactical groups, or BTGs, were transferred to the area as part of troop rotation and in an attempt to reinforce defensive positions. Let's shift to some assessment. In our Week in Review on August 14th, we reported that Russian military doctrine calls for BTGs to maintain enough supplies to be self-sufficient for three to five days. In that assessment, we reported that one of the first signs that Russian troops west of the Dnipro were suffering from supply shortages would be a reduction in troop maneuvers and artillery fire. 
It's been five days since the last bridge across the Dnipro into Kherson was knocked out of commission. One day of data does not make a trend, but the only ground fighting done by Russian forces was when Ukraine took the initiative. When Russia initiated the full-scale invasion of Ukraine 25 weeks ago, many BTGs were understaffed, with three companies and 30% of the personnel made up of conscripts, approximately 800 troops. In June, Russia reset the composition of a staffed BTG to 450 troops, just two companies. The addition of two BTGs into Kherson is likely recently formed volunteer battalions with little training and minimal combat power. Given the GLOC restrictions into and out of Kherson, the deployment is likely personnel only. Corruption is deeply rooted in the Russian military, and this rotation may be driven by soldiers who have bought a transfer to the east bank of the Dnipro. In Mykolaiv, two Russian S-300 anti-aircraft missiles being used as ground-to-ground weapons hit the Black Sea University. This is the second attack on the campus in the last three days. One building suffered heavy damage, as did the windows and facade of a second building. The first attack occurred two days after a TV news report showed the college preparing for fall classes and students going through registration and orientation. Looking to Dnipropetrovsk and Zaporizhia, there is significant concern by the West and global nuclear power monitoring organizations that Russia is preparing for a false flag event at the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. NBC News reported that Andrei Yusov, Ukraine's military intelligence directorate spokesman, stated that Russia directed the employees of Rosatom, Russia's state-run nuclear company, working at Zaporizhia not to show up to work. Video emerged inside Reactor Complex 1, showing at least five Russian supply trucks and a large cache of ammunition stored in the machine shop by the main turbine deck. The location of the video was authenticated using archived photos from inside the power plant. The turbine deck is interconnected to the reactor itself. Steam generated by the nuclear reactor is superheated and spins the turbine that produces electricity. The steam is then returned to the reactor unit to be reheated. Throwing in some assessment here, separate from an attack, Ukraine and Russia have experienced spontaneous accidental detonation from older munitions, which can become unstable and explode with little provocation. In our assessment, the placement of ammunition within the machine shop breaches Article 56, Section 1 of the Geneva Convention. We analyzed what the Geneva Convention states about military occupations of nuclear power plants on last Friday's episode. You'll find it around minute 13. The settlement of Nikopol was being attacked by rockets fired from MLRS located within the nuclear power plant compound at the time this episode was recording. Also, as of this report, the homepage for TASS, a Russian state news agency, was devoid of any news about Zaporizhia. In a statement released by the Russian embassy in the United States, the language added fuel to concerns of a looming false flag attack. The embassy added that the Russian Ministry of Defense had accused the armed forces of Ukraine of having intention to sabotage the power plant, leading to a radiation leak, a violation of the integrity of the nuclear waste storage facility, and moving the reactor into a state of abnormal operation. The Russian embassy said, quote, the goal is to create an exclusion zone of up to 30 kilometers 
and accuse Russia of nuclear terrorism. End quote. Time for assessment. Our team of analysts is divided into two camps. Camp 1 believes this is a manufactured crisis. They cite the Russian Ministry of Defense's multiple accusations that Ukraine would deploy chemical weapons as a false flag and accuse Russia. They also added the provocations in Transnistria in May and the announcement that nuclear-capable weapons would be positioned in Belarus. Another example was blaming Ukraine for the inability to make safe grain shipments while still bombing Snake Island and ports in Odessa and Mykolaiv, targeting grain storage and shipping facilities. Their position is that the Kremlin cooks up a psychological warfare campaign every four to six weeks to try and damage Western support of Ukraine. Their closing argument is that any major nuclear accident risks radiation spreading into the Donbass and Russia and could impact the water supply that flows into Crimea. Even if military planners have floated the scenario in the Kremlin, they believe it would be quickly dismissed. Camp 2 believes this is a real threat and provocation, and grew more concerned about the Russian embassy statement that specifically stated, quote, a reactor, indicating one, versus the plural reactors, which would be the more logical way to word the statement. They point out that weather conditions would favor a staged nuclear accident on August 19th, with a low-pressure system in south-central Ukraine producing northwest winds. Winds would carry radiation over western Ukraine, Moldova, and eastern parts of Romania and Bulgaria. In a major accident, the fog of war would prevent a ready assessment of which belligerent to blame. It would serve as an excuse for Russia to escalate the so-called special military operation further. In our final assessment, as a team, we believe this is a psychological operation meant to cast doubt on Kyiv and its intentions. In the Cherniv and Sumy region, Dmitry Shivitsky, Sumy Oblast administrative and military governor, reported that the settlements of Bilopilia, Krasnopilia, and Miropilia were attacked. We'll say more about this in the war crimes and human rights segment. In the Black Sea and Odessa region, there were reports that Belbek military airfield in Russia-controlled Crimea was attacked. The reports were untrue. Russian air defenses were activated in Sevastopol and fired at least four rockets at an unknown target. The booster sections from Pantsir anti-aircraft systems were found in the Sevastopol region. Russian anti-aircraft weapons were activated at the Kirsch Bridge, which connects mainland Russia with occupied Crimea. Russian state media claims a Ukrainian drone was shot down by anti-aircraft fire. A tornado raked the beach and resort area of Saki in Russian-controlled Crimea, less than two kilometers from the airbase that experienced a, quote, accidental explosion last week. There were no reported injuries. Let's talk about what's happening theater-wide and outside Ukraine. A Russian ammunition depot in Timonovo, Russia, had a catastrophic explosion. Videos from the area showed multiple secondary explosions, including rockets, missiles, thermite, and potentially white phosphorus. Fire and rescue crews were standing off because it was too dangerous to approach the area. Timonovo and Basovo were evacuated, and NASA firms showed multiple secondary fires in regions away from the depot. 
Satellite images showed the region had two open-air ammunition depots, one that covered 147,000 square meters, or 1.6 million square feet. The homepage of TASS had no mention of the blast. Ukrainian officials have not claimed responsibility. There are reports that the United States will announce another $800 million in military aid to Ukraine by early next week. No details of what is included in the package were released. Exiled Luhansk Oblast administrative and military governor Serhi Haidai suggested that the Russian offensive to capture Bakhmut has stalled out due to a lack of personnel. He accuses self-declared LNR government officials of rounding up all available men through forced conscription to form a larger offensive. In Russian-controlled Novoazovsk in the Donetsk Oblast, cars were lined up for kilometers waiting to pass through a Russian military checkpoint. The vehicles are traveling east into Russia. Tension is growing with the increased attacks deep into Russian-occupied territory in the Donbass and Crimean Peninsula. In our War Crimes and Human Rights segment, we discuss events that might be upsetting to hear about. There is no graphic detail in today's report, but if you're sensitive to descriptions of human rights abuses, please feel free to skip ahead about two minutes to the next segment. The Russian Ministry of Defense is targeting Ukrainian higher education facilities just as the fall college season is about to begin. In the Mykolaiv section, we reported the second missile attack on the Black Sea University. The Kramatorsk Technology and Design College and the Donbass State Machine Building Academy, both located in Kramatorsk, were hit by rockets fired by MLRS. Both schools suffered significant damage, but the strikes occurred at night and fall classes have not started. A building on the campus of the National Aerospace Academy in Kharkiv was destroyed in an overnight missile attack. A security guard who worked at the university was killed in the attack. In Zolochi, northwest of Kharkiv, Russian forces shelled the town library, which was completely destroyed after the building caught fire. In Sumy, Russian artillery shelling of border communities badly damaged a primary school. Classes are scheduled to restart on September 1st. Intentionally targeting cultural, historic, scientific, religious, and educational facilities is considered a war crime. Russia has used the derided Amnesty International report from August 4th to justify attacks on civilian infrastructure and to maintain control of the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. In geopolitical news, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said he has agreed to a framework for a visit by an International Atomic Energy Agency, or IAEA, mission to the Russian-occupied Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. The agreement was reached after meeting with United Nations Secretary General Antonio Guterres in Lviv. Zelensky said, quote, Nuclear security is an indisputable priority for the entire world. Mr. Secretary-General and I have agreed to the framework for a possible visit in a legal manner and via territories that have not been captured by the occupiers. End quote. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan was also in the meeting and, during the joint press conference, declared, quote, We are alarmed by the hostilities at the nuclear power plant. We don't want to experience another Chernobyl. We are and will remain on Ukraine's side. End quote. And in economic news, the ruble improved slightly with an official exchange rate of 59 rubles to 1 U.S. dollar. 
WTI crude oil climbed to $89 a barrel, and Brent rose to $95 a barrel. United States RBOB wholesale gasoline for spot market delivery increased to $2.99 a gallon, or $0.79 a liter. SRW Chicago wheat futures dropped to $0.75 a bushel for December 2022 delivery. The last time the price was that low was in October 2021. And that's what we know. Join me again tomorrow for more updates. Until then, stay safe, everyone. You've been listening to the Malcontent News Russia-Ukraine War Podcast. To help keep us independent, please consider providing financial support by becoming a patron. Want on-demand news in your hand? Download the Google News app and make Malcontent News one of your favorites to receive breaking news updates. Thank you for listening.